1 Corinthians 12, Paul continues to address the misuse and the misunderstanding of God's gifts that have plagued the Corinthian church. As we look to the Word of God, if you'd please join me in prayer. Lord God, we do ask that you would guide us by your Word and your Spirit, that in your light we may see the light of your truth and there find the freedom that only the gospel can bring. Lord, and in your will, discover the peace that you have for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, for it is in his name we do pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 12, we'll be looking at verses 12 to 21 to start. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose, If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many body parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The word of the Lord. By way of a quick review, Corinth was a wealthy cosmopolitan city of Greece. But Corinth was also a recreated city. The Romans had completely destroyed it around 150 B.C. And it was 100 years later that Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth to be a Roman colony. By the time that Paul arrived, Corinth was a mixture of Romans, Greeks, and Jews. It had become large and prosperous. It was a new money kind of city. Corinth was a place of style over substance. A bustling metropolis of over 100,000 people, which was quite large in the ancient world, and had all the cultural diversity of Olympic-style games, chariot racing theater, and a thriving sex industry. In the Roman Empire, Corinthian became a catchphrase for a person who was decadent and immoral. Our closest equivalent would be Las Vegas. Build it big with lots of glitz and glamour. Bring in big names to draw in the crowds. And they were marked, as one scholar refers to it, as a competitiveness, self-achievement, and self-promotion. Status and honor played a large role in Roman culture, and certainly Corinth was no exception. And because there was not a long-established social community, it was fairly open for ambitious people to claim a piece of that elite status pie. The good news of Jesus Christ comes into the midst of it, comes into this mess and tips it upside down. A call to serve, a call to go low, confronts those who are trying to be upwardly mobile. A culture of the have and have-nots, the ins and the outs, meets Jesus the Savior, the one who had it all but gave it up for the people he came to serve. So a new community is formed that's centered on Jesus and not on personal wealth, achievement, Or social status. But we understand the changing of the old guard of the human heart. It never goes smoothly. Even the very gifts 
for their good that God has blessed them with are being used for self-promotion. But because Jesus creates and gifts a new people, we are all needed to be that new community and needed to serve one another. And this was a major lesson that the Corinthians were missing, fallen on deaf ears to them. They were all a part of each other, and everyone was essential. They needed one another. And in chapter 12, beginning in verses 1 to 11, Paul had already said that there were many different kinds of gifts, but only one gift giver, the Holy Spirit. Paul lists different gifts, but he doesn't define them or really give us any description of them because that wasn't his point. His focus is on the unity of all believers in Jesus Christ. And now he gives an elaborate analogy of the body. In verse 12, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now, in the ESV there, the English word member is correct. It's a good word, but it was probably better to really insert their body parts because that's what Paul is talking about. In English, we will often speak of members like the members of a club, the members of an organization, and we mean people, individuals who belong to a group. But Paul here is being very literal. The body is made up of different body parts, different organs. Now, if you join or leave a club or organization, you're still a complete you. Paul's point is that in the body of Christ, you are not a complete you. You're a kidney or you're an arm. If you withdraw, you are disconnected from the other necessary parts. He goes on, verse 13, he says, For in one spirit we are all baptized in one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, one body part, but many. State the obvious, the Holy Spirit makes Christians Christian. Social status or ethnicity give way to being in Christ. No one is given an advantage and no one is excluded. All Christians bear this name of Jesus in their baptism. All are baptized into his death just as all are awaiting the renewal of their bodies in him at his return. There is a solidarity because the Spirit has regenerated us. We are born again in Christ Jesus by the life-giving power of the Spirit of God. That's Paul's main point. No one is above and no one is below. All have been given this as a gift of grace. God's kindness and mercy to his people. And in verses 14 to 25, Paul then goes on with this extended analogy of the human body. He says, all parts of the body are necessary for the body to work. The eyes need the ears, the hands need the feet. And what Paul is saying, it cuts against both those who are overly proud and those who are dejected. For those who are saying, you know, I'm superior to all of you. I don't need any one of you, but you're really lucky to have me. Paul's saying, no, not at all. And those who are saying, oh, I'm just a lowly nothing. Nobody needs me at all. Paul's saying, no, the body needs you. Both of these are wrong. The body needs all of its parts to be a well-functioning body. None are better and none are less because all are necessary for the good of the whole. 
And all of this is from God as a gift. Think how often in a story or a movie they give us that character we like to hate. And much of the time it's some version of Cinderella's stepsisters who think they're so much better than her. And we delight when they finally get what's coming to them. Because we don't like proud and arrogant characters and we cheer for the underdog. Just think of how often that is the story. The proud and the arrogant lifting themselves up. Paul is saying, not so in the body of Christ. Maybe a, a better story would be Disney's Encanto, closer to what Paul is saying here. Everyone in the Madrigal family has different magical gifts, except Mirabel. Spoiler alert. Mirabel's gift is bringing the rest of the family together to use their gifts for the good of, the, of all. See, Disney totally ripped off the Apostle Paul. <laughs> That's essentially the story that he's telling. Everyone is necessary. Everyone's a part of the family. And Paul goes on. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are actually indispensable. And the parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow with greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Verse 24, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Equal honor for one another, equal care and concern for one another. Only in Christ can we take a a vast diversity of people and gifts and talents and forge them into a Holy Spirit-governed and unified church. And he goes on in verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. What he's saying is there's no private suffering in the body of Christ. We suffer together, we rejoice together. Think of it, something like a small event of a stubbed toe. It throws off the rest of the body. We start limping, our balance is off, and that pain radiates so much, it's all we can think of. Every other thought in our head gets pushed out, except how much your toe hurts. And then we go into this hyper-alert mode to keep anything from bumping into it. One stub toe has all of our attention. And so it is to be in the body of Christ. In Acts chapter 9, we find Saul, the other name for the Apostle Paul before his conversion, he was actually on his way to persecute Christians. And he sees a bright light, he falls to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus identifies with the very ones that Paul is trying to persecute. To hurt them is to hurt Jesus. And that's what it means for us too. This is the kind of love and concern that we are to have for one another. We rejoice together. We suffer together. Because we are all part of Christ's body, the church. How I treat others is how I treat Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who says that whatever you do to the least of these, so you have done to me. And in his body, all of us are necessary. And that means not only do we have certain necessary giftings, but that we also are a gift to others in ourselves. It isn't just that we have a gift, we are a gift. Verse 27, Paul goes on, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members, body parts of it. Each individual is needed because each has a gift for the whole body. Verse 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of languages, tongues. Again, Paul just lists these different gifts. He doesn't define them, doesn't describe them. The first three, apostles, prophets, teachers, are marked by instructing and teaching. And then there's a short list of these other gifts, and some of them definitely are miraculous in nature, Gifts of miracles, gift of healings. Now, the others might be more of an aptitude, helping, administrating. And then lastly, tongues, because that is the problem of child in the Corinthian church. We'll look at that later in chapter 14. But here, a few thoughts on the miraculous because it just naturally arises here. At the headwaters of the Lord doing new things, we see this kind of divine activity. The Exodus, major event in the life of Israel. Powerful miracles of deliverance from the plagues to the crossing of the sea to the manna. These types of events were not seen again in Israel in the same way. We go to the dedication of Solomon's temple. For the first time, the temple is now built in the city of Jerusalem. It's finally come together to bring the unification of worship to God's people. And the event is described that fire consumed all of the offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord came down in such a powerful way that the priests were not even able to enter into the temple. We don't hear of of that happening again in that way after this point. The ministries of the prophets Elisha and Elijah It carried with them great signs, great events, but we don't see that in the same way with the rest of the prophets. The coming of Jesus, there were many encounters with the demonic that was seen with such a frequency that was not there even with the apostles. It was unique to this power encounter between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of darkness. Healings and miraculous sign gifts it didn't seem to go much beyond the second generation of Christians. The early church was not anti-miraculous. They simply recognized that these greater outpourings were no longer happening. Yes, the Lord still interacts with his people and answers prayer. The difference is that the Lord may heal in whatever way he deems best. There's no longer, as it were, a person connected to that event with a particular gift of healing gift of miracles. That has been almost uniformly recognized throughout church history until we get into the 1900s and then we get people who then make contrary claims. Again, hear this. The Lord does as he wishes. That has included miraculous events that have taken place. But those who say that they have a particular 
miraculous sign gift, they have not proven their case to the larger body of Christ. Leave the tent, the convention center, leave all the trappings of a revival meeting, go and empty out a hospital wing, and then we'll take notice. God is still God. God is on the throne, and he does as he wishes. But for certain wonderful gifts and sign gifts, that doesn't seem to be taking place in the same way as it was at the headwaters of the ministry of the church. But we do see analogies of these wonderful gifts that have been given. The apostles were those who were originally handpicked by the Lord as his messengers. Those with prophetic gifts brought forth the word of God in a declarative way. And we do see reflection, echoes of these greater gifts in pastors and teachers. We see echoes and analogies of these greater gifts in serving and administrating, in faithfulness. There there are lots of, of these things that echo through the church, but in a different way. And even at the time of Paul, Paul's saying these are rare gifts. He says in verse 29, are all prophets? Are all apostles? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And in the Greek, this is more pronounced. These questions are set in a particular way where it assumes a negative answer. No, not all are prophets. No, not all have gifts of miracles. Paul is not even saying that the Corinthians together have all these gifts. And certainly no one person does. In the book of Acts, it appears that those who were apostles and members of their traveling community, some of them had these greater sign gifts, and we see that in Corinth. Some of them in the Corinthian church did as well. But Paul is addressing this huge misuse of God's gifts. They're completely using them for the wrong reason. Climbing the social ladder, showing their status, elevating themselves at the expense of others, the exact opposite of the gifts of God. And Paul does tell them, verse 31, earnestly desire the greater gifts. What does he mean? The the greater gifts are those that serve the most people in building and instructing in the Lord. But he tells them at the end of verse 31, I will show you a still more excellent way of desiring these higher gifts. What is that more excellent way? It leads Paul into chapter 13, his entire discussion of love. Love is the greatest of all gifts, and anyone can have it. And anyone can have it in ever-growing measure. But that is for next week. So looking back at chapter 12, there in verse 4, Paul said, There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God gives to each of us. That includes gifts, service abilities, our passions, our desires, our life experiences, our skills, our aptitudes. That's all a gift. There's no room for upward mobility in the church in terms of status or value. All are equal in Christ, even though all have been given given different gifts and abilities. Several things flow from this for us. First, brothers and sisters, 
Do not envy the gifts of others. God did not make a mistake with you. It's a universal fallen human nature that is envious of others. We compare ourselves all the time to what others have, to what others are, and we want what they have. I was in the Philippines years ago with a group and on our days off, several of our gals would, would try to find some beach to go and tan on. And the Filipinos were completely baffled. Their women would often have parasols in the sun. And in their department stores, you could buy skin lightening products. Ours wanted it to be darker, and they wanted it to be lighter. And so it goes with just about everything, doesn't it? Who among us would not change something about us if we could? Certain physically, I'd like to be taller, I'd like to be shorter, I'd like to be this, or I'd like to be that. I want a different eye color, I want a different hair color. Who also would say, like, I wish I was more articulate. I wish I was a better singer, a better musician. I wish I was a better writer. I wish I was a better poet. I wish I'd pick your thing. I wish I was better at sports. We all have those things we wish we were better at and we see someone else with that gift and we're envious of them. God did not make a mistake with you, nor did he shortchange you with your gifts and who you are. War against the heart. Do not envy the gifts of others. You have been uniquely gifted to the body of Christ and you are necessary for her to be who God intends her to be. And another important lesson for us is to be aware of empire builders in the church. Empires built on personalities, usually around speaking gifts or charisma. It is understandable that great gifts draw people in. That's completely understandable. We listen to people who use those types of gifts all the time. But a quick scan of the headlines shows us that over the years, how horribly wrong this has gone in the church. When church leaders start looking like and mimicking the social elites of our culture, things have gone very, very wrong. Don't feed the celebrity machine. Don't feed it. It kills the church. It does not promote her health and her well-being. It feeds and fuels envy, pride, a social status of those who have and those who do not. These Corinthians were seeking their own worth in their status, in their special abilities. And Paul is telling, no, brothers, sisters, your status is in belonging to Jesus. That's it. Jesus takes outsiders, all of us, and makes insiders of us, all of us. Know that every person sitting here at some point has felt like an outsider, feels like an outsider. A simple trip down memory lane to high school to school, even the most popular in person, feels like an outsider. Why? Because it is a condition of the human heart alienated from God. That's all of us. 
And the good news is that Jesus makes us all in him insiders. We are connected one to another. We're not lonely, misunderstood people that nobody gets. Jesus gets you. Jesus died for you. Jesus gifted you to be a part of his body. And he takes the lowly and he lifts them up. He takes the high and the mighty and he lowers them down. And he gives gifts of service to be used one to the other. And it's not so much that you have a gift, but that you are a gift. You are a gift of Christ to us. And we are a gift of Christ to you. And that gets worked out in a messy way in the church in this life, to be sure. And we long for the day when Christ will return and when we will be able to see the splendor and the majesty of one another in the fullness of what that is without envy, without comparison, without pride. That's the day we look forward to. But until then, That's what we are to live out now, certainly imperfectly, but certainly with that goal in front of us. Why? Because Jesus is glorified. Jesus alone is the head of the church. He cannot be replaced. You and I can be replaced. We are here, though, at his command and his call. So because of Jesus, we are irreplaceable too. Not in ourselves, but because of him. Love your gifts. Appreciate who you are. Because in Christ, you are everything. Outside of Christ, we are nothing. In him, he has brought the beauty and the wonder of the church together. For the great good of his kingdom purposes in the world to which we are to take place and to take part in. Be the gift that God has made you to be. Pray with me. Father, indeed, we thank you. We praise you. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And Father, at the same time, we ask that you would forgive us. We repent, Father, of our envy. Lord, of of even our judgment of you. We're wondering if you have failed us or made a mistake. Father, forgive us for such an attitude. And Lord, that you would restore to us the joy that we have only in Christ. Father, restore to us the knowledge of the grace and the freedom that has been a gift to us through him. We bless you this day. We praise you. We worship you. We would ask that Jesus himself would be glorified through his body, the church. Amen.